All right, let's dig into uh, Leviticus today. We're going to, um, if you weren't here last Sunday, you won't uh, be, uh, be behind, but you need to know that we talked a lot about health and well-being uh, last Sunday. Uh, and today we're going to build off of that and, and move forward toward uh, really what I think is the central theme of Leviticus um, and the reason why we're pausing uh, this summer to, to spend four weeks on a book no one likes on a book no one really understands, uh, is because um, when I talk to people who are non-religious or unaffiliated or anti-religion in Houston about Jesus or about what I do or about what we're doing at the story, the conversation inevitably, nine times out of ten, ends up being about the Bible. Because this is the number one hurdle, as I've said before, to people giving Jesus another chance, giving the church another chance, giving me an audience with them as we're talking is they don't think our Bible is worth much. Best case scenario, non-religious Houstonians seem to think that the Bible is a relic of a bygone era. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is they think the Bible is hurtful. They think they've seen the Bible be used as a weapon by you know, a pastor or, or a family member at Thanksgiving or a, or a Facebook friend, someone at some point used this book, We Love and Lift Up, as a weapon against someone they care about, or maybe they themselves were hurt by something someone said, wielding the Bible. And, and they wonder if, uh, if the Bible can be trusted at all, or if it's just this hateful, antiquated kind of book. And so uh, we thought about, you know, how our one of our core practices at The Story Houston has been and will continue to be making sense of the Bible. And I just figured if we can spend four weeks really digging in and making sense of Leviticus, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> like it gets a lot easier uh, making sense of the rest of the Bible. And, and so uh, we're, we're starting uh, early in our life with, with Leviticus and making sense of this uh, difficult book that a lot of people uh, honestly uh, struggle with. And so um, for many, many folks, Leviticus is unacceptable on the face of it, prima facie. It is backwoods. It is archaic. It at times is ugly. It has been used in hateful ways for many people. And many Christians are included in this category of people. Leviticus is to the Bible what... Uh, Pasadena is to Houston. It's, uh, it's, it's unpleasant, but included because of proximity mostly. And, and yet, there, anybody from Pasadena here? It's, it's been really nice knowing you. Thank you for coming this one Sunday. There are some really great things about Pasadena that nobody knows. Pasadena is the birthplace of Texas. Santa Ana was captured and, and defeated in Pasadena. Uh, John Travolta filmed Urban Cowboy in Pasadena. Uh, the, the world's largest volunteer fire department it calls Pasadena home. And so there's great, awesome things about Pasadena. What I want to say is that to a much greater extent, Leviticus is like that. Like if you hear what people say about it and that's all you pay attention to, then you will build this completely negative image of Leviticus. But what I'm saying is that properly understood, Leviticus is this beautiful, wonderful, fascinating text about the nature and character of the Most High God and the health and well-being of that God's people. It is this wonderful 
text when uh, properly uh, understood. And even without all the spiritual stuff, as we talked about last week, Leviticus is widely recognized as the world's first, human history's first uh, health code, public health code, like this thorough list of rules in Leviticus about uh, hygiene and about treatment of diseases and quarantine protocols and, and dietary restrictions for a healthy life in the wilderness. All of these things were new to the world back then. So we read things like the, the health stuff in Leviticus. We think it's just weird. We think it's archaic. And what I want you to see is that at the time, Leviticus represented the best that health medicine had to offer in, in the world at the time. The only comparable health code from that time and place, this is about 1500 BC, wasn't even that thorough. It's uh, one sheet of rules from Egypt called the Papyrus Ebers. And the Papyrus Ebers makes Leviticus look like MD Anderson in comparison. I mean, it, is, it, it is not even close to the sophistication of Leviticus for the time and place. I mean, so many of the rules in Leviticus still apply today. You read the Papyrus Ebers, uh, was written about the same time in the same region, uh, you, you see things like if you get a splinter, if you got a splinter in 1500 BC in Egypt, they rubbed donkey dung and earthworm guts into that splinter. That's what you got if you got a splinter. If you were balding and didn't want to be balding anymore, they told you to uh, mix together the fat of six different animals uh, and rub it on your head, including the fat of a hippopotamus, which gives you this awesome image of this balding guy going hippopotamus hunting out in the wilderness, desperately trying to track this hippopotamus before asking that pretty girl out for a date or something, you know, like just desperate. Uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that you find in uh, comparable, you know, health codes from, uh, from the region. If you had cataracts, you were supposed to drop six drops of cow urine in your eyes, according to Papyrus Ebers. And so, yes, Leviticus has its moments. Yes, Leviticus is weird. But what I'm saying is that everything that was written 3,500 years ago is going to be weird to us uh, to, some, uh, to some degree. Um, um, that's, that's just the way it is. And yes, you know, I'll also own the fact that Leviticus has been improperly used by Christians to hurt people. Like people cherry pick a verse here and say you don't belong in church because of this or you know just to be mean people will will do that. Christians will do that. I got a couple of emails from people who heard me last week saying that Leviticus has been mistreated in the public sphere and their response was well it was mistreated by Christians first. A lot of the dismissing of Leviticus is defensiveness against the way Christians have used it at times. And I own that, man. But look, that's not on Leviticus. That's on ignorant people that use it the wrong way. Like, so, the, you know, blaming Leviticus for what ignorant people do with it is like blaming ketchup for when people put it on hot dogs. Like, it's, it's disgusting, yes, and that's not how it was meant to be used. Absolutely not. But that's not on ketchup. Like, it's not ketchup's fault, Right? Can you say that with me? That's not ketchup's fault. <laughs> all right, so that's the same thing with Leviticus. All right, you got you to gotta dig into it yourself and stop relying on what other people uh, have said about it uh, in, in the past. And so Leviticus, first and foremost, is about health and holiness. Last week we talked about the ways Leviticus is about health. Today I want to talk about the ways it is about 
holiness. Holiness, the word, uh, the root word of holiness, holy, is Kadesh. It is mentioned over 150 times in Leviticus, uh, which tells you something. Uh, the, the mantra of Leviticus that is repeated over and over is, uh, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. So holiness is the theme of Leviticus. Health is important in so much as it contributes to holiness, right? So it's a means to an end. Holiness is the point, which is a problem for us because nobody in 21st century Houston has any idea what holiness means anymore. Like when we hear holiness, I think most of us have in mind one of two images. When, you, when I ask you to imagine or visualize holiness, you either imagine the Dalai Lama meditating in the Himalayas or you imagine a street preacher you know, on the corner or that Facebook friend of yours who, who you would describe as holier than thou. That kind of self-righteousness uh, that's propped up holiness to be seen by others. That, that is, I think those are the two images that we have of holiness today. Uh, it, it's basically either a really distant kind of mystical thing or it's a negative. And I see it personally. I go to coffee houses a lot. Like that's where I office basically is coffee houses around Houston. And I strike up conversations with baristas and I want them to know uh, who I am. I want to know who they are. I want them to know about the story and, and all this stuff. And we're talking, you know, and everything's great. We're talking about sports and we're talking about life and kids and Houston and whatever. And then inevitably the question comes up, well, what is it that you do? How do you make a living? And I know the conversation's over. Like, before I even answer the question, I wish I had one of those jobs that was just a normal response. One time I wanted to be able to say, I'm an engineer, and I, uh, you know, I, I'm an architect. You know, so I could still just be a guy. But no, I'm a pastor. And if I'm not enjoying the conversation and I really want them to stop talking to me, I'll say, I'm an evangelist. Woof. <laughs> conversation over, man. Uh, I'm a church planner? No, no, no way. But, you know, because... Whereas before, you know, we were having fun. It was a little, we were cussing a little, maybe. We were, like, uh, talking about, like, real life. And now it's like they think I'm some kind of a holy man. And so I think half of the people who find out what I do for a living, you know, I, I think half of them picture me, like, reading scripture from parchment scrolls in the morning or something. And I think the other half of them, you know, expect me to pull out a cardboard sign from my backpack that says, repent, like, the end is near or something. Like, those are the two things people expect when they find out what I do. And, and, you know, it's either that mysticism or it's a negative. And what I want to say is that neither of those things is what uh, Leviticus is pointing to. Neither of those things really define or describe biblical holiness. Biblical holiness, Levitical holiness, is a matter of being different to reveal a God who is different. Being different to show the world a God who is different. This is what holiness is. Our scripture passage today is from Leviticus chapter 20. If you want to open your Bibles with me, I invite you to do that or find it on your phone or in your study guides. You can follow along there and then we'll have it on the screens as well. Leviticus 20. Uh, the verses will be uh, 22 through 24 and verse 26. All right. Y'all ready? Okay. Uh, this is God talking, obviously, to the people, the Hebrews in the, in the desert after they've escaped 
their slavery in Egypt. It says, you must keep all my rules and all my regulations and do them so that, so that the land I am bringing you to where you will live won't vomit you out. You must follow the practices of the nations that I am throwing out before you because they did all these things and I was disgusted with them. But I have told you, you will certainly possess the fertile land that I'm, and I'm giving it to you to possess. It is a land full of milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from all the peoples. You must be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have separated you from all other peoples to be my own. There are two mentions there of being separated, being other than, being different as, uh, as pertains to holiness, right? So uh, if you've ever read through Leviticus or tried to, <laughs> that's a more accurate description probably, you probably found some things quite frustrating about Leviticus. Probably the most frustrating thing is how descriptive and gross it can be about oozing sores and, uh, you know, discharges from your body and uh, different sexual rules and things. That can be a little strange to work your way through, and I understand that, but probably just as frustrating as that for many of us, and I hear this a lot, is that Leviticus is just so repetitive. You ever notice the repetition in Leviticus? It's like, okay, we get it. You know, like, yes, you're the Lord, our God. Okay, like, you know, like, well, we must keep your statutes. Be holy as you're holy. You're the Lord, our God. It says those three things like 50 times throughout Leviticus, and it can be really hard to read. But sometimes we pass judgment without really understanding why the repetition is there to begin with, because the repetition is there for a purpose. And I want to remind you what we said last week about context. Do you remember what we said about context? When reading anything... Context is everything. When reading anything, context is everything. I want us to keep in mind the context of this repetition. Reminds me a little bit of uh, when my son was two. He's five now. It's three years ago. We were in Kansas City, and he was two years old. And I was putting him to bed uh, one night, and we were horsing around in his uh, bedroom, and I was uh, taking, uh, just for a moment, I was stepping away to take his toothbrush into the bathroom and leave it there. And when I did, I heard this sound from his room. It's a sound that every parent knows. It is a distinctive sound that only your child makes. It is the sound of your child's head smashing into something. You know the sound? And then I heard the one sound you don't want to hear after hearing your child's head smashing into something. I heard silence. That is the one time as a father that you don't want to hear silence. <laughs> um, usually you're praying for a little bit of silence, but not then. You want to hear screaming. You want to hear crying. And I ran back into his room, and I found him there lying face down, motionless, with his forehead resting on the corner of this bookshelf. Terrified, I knelt down and turned him over. There's blood everywhere. And luckily, thankfully, his eyes were open. He was just in shock. But when the blood covered his eye, the gash was here. When the blood covered his eye, he freaked out completely. He started screaming. And I picked him up, and I ran downstairs with him in my arms. And the first thing I said was, Gio, get the car ready. We've got to go to the hospital, and the whole way he's crying, he's freaking out. The whole way I'm carrying him down the stairs, out the house, into the car, 
on the way to the hospital, the whole way I'm saying the same things to him over and over again. I remember saying, it's okay, buddy. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Daddy's got you. It's going to be okay, buddy. Over and over again. When we got to the hospital and the doctors were lacing 14 stitches into my little boy's two-year-old head, his mommy held him in her arms as they worked on him, and she said the same thing. It's okay, baby. It's okay. Mommy's here. I've got you. It's going to be okay. When they were done, they sent us home, but they told us to, you know, keep an eye on him for concussion symptoms. And so instead of putting him to bed in his own bed, we kept him in in our bed, and he was in pain, he was probably still in shock, he was whimpering, he was crying, and again, Giovanna held him in her arms and stroked his hair and said, it's okay, it's okay, mommy's here, until he fell asleep. And then every two hours, we had to wake him up again to make sure he was responsive and okay. And every two hours, every time we woke him up, he freaked out again because he was in pain. He didn't know why he was in mommy and daddy's bed instead of his own bed like usual. And, and he didn't know really what was happening and why we were waking him up in the middle of the night. And every time we calmed him down, I calmed him down. Daddy's here. Daddy's here. It's okay. You're going to be okay. The worst is over. You're okay. It occurred to me this week how when your child is traumatized, you repeat these things so that they'll absorb it. You repeat these things to make sure they hear you, to make sure they know what it is you're trying to tell them at this particular moment or season in their lives. I kept repeating that to Cohen, my son, because I wanted him to be sure that I was there and that it was okay. When I read Leviticus now, I hear the voice of a father whose child has been hurt. The voice of a father whose child is traumatized. The voice of a father saying, it's okay, it's okay, I'm with you, I am the Lord your God. It says it again and again. He says, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God. It is God saying, I am here, I've got this now, the worst is over, you're going to be okay. Now this is what the future looks like, because I've got you now. After everything those people had been through, I've got you, is one thing God repeats. As my kids get older, I find myself repeating other kinds of phrases to them. So they're seven and five now. They're fighting a lot between each other, fighting over toys. Their sense of entitlement is unfathomable at this point in their lives. They think the world owes them everything. And whenever they have these flashes of you know, uh, exhaustion-driven uh, angst or whenever they fight or whenever they think they uh, deserve everything at a moment's notice, whenever they're ungrateful for what they have in life, I find myself more and more, this is a weekly occurrence, pulling them to the side one at a time and looking them in the eye and saying, that is not who you are. That is not how we do things. 
That is not your nature. That is not your character. And this is my favorite one. That is not who I'm raising you to be. (laughs) Because it's so important to me as a father that my children rise to the occasion and know who they are and who they're supposed to be becoming and not settle for mediocrity. Not settle for the norm of bad behavior or selfish behavior or whatever. To live a more meaningful life. And I I hear the voice of God in Leviticus saying the same thing to the people. I know who you were, but that's not who you are. I know you were slaves, but that's not who you are now. I know you were in chains, but now you're free. This is the voice of God in Leviticus, showing people their true nature, who they really are. Now, uh, what that is, when I look at my child and say, that's not who you are, this is who you are, that's me calling them toward holiness, Toward being different. Uh, and and that's, that's holiness. And when God tells the people in Leviticus, that's not who you are, that's who you were, but you're someone different now, that's the same thing happening. Now God is saying, uh, he mentions, uh, every time he says be holy, he seems to say, don't be like them. He tells the people, don't compare yourselves to other people. That's not good enough to say, well, we're doing this, but they do that, so we're good, right? You know, it's like when you're speeding and someone else is speeding faster than you. You're like, ah, I'm, I'm okay. Like, I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, that's the thing that the people are doing. And God says, don't compare yourself to other people. People who bow to lesser gods, people who worship idols, they might have a license to act however they want and treat people in whatever way they want and have sex whenever they want with whoever they want. God says, but that's not who you are. You're separated for a purpose. You're set apart for a reason. And that's what we find in Leviticus 17 through 27. 17 through 27, chapter 17 through 27, is what's known as the holiness code of Leviticus. This is the legal part of Leviticus. It's where you have the laws about sexuality and proper sexual relations. You have the laws about hospitality. You have immigration laws in this holiness code. Um, You have the penalties for all the laws. And in our 21st century minds, we look back and think, well, these penalties are way too harsh. God seems mean and scary and arbitrary, and I don't want anything to do with that Old Testament Leviticus God because... Uh, He punishes people's uh, crimes against Leviticus. Now, I think this is more of what we talked about last Sunday. If you missed it, we talked some about chronological snobbery. You remember that phrase from last week? Chronological snobbery is making the assumption that the time and culture you live in now is inherently superior to all the cultures that came before us. Sometimes we look at things at Leviticus, like Leviticus, and think, well, we're better now. We would never do things like that. We're sophisticated. We're modern. And Leviticus is, uh, is archaic. But um, again, we're going to context because... In 1500 B.C., most other cultures in the region 
found it okay in a pinch to sacrifice children to gods. That's the brutal world Leviticus comes from. We have to come to terms with it. Kids were being offered up to idols as blood sacrifices. In Leviticus, God says quite clearly, anyone who kills a child for some god should himself face death in Leviticus. And I know this seems brutal and Games of Thrones-ish to us, but like, but this was child protective services in 3,500 years ago. You know, that's what it looked like. And this is God leading the way to stand up for the weak and the vulnerable in the midst of the community. And this is another brutal aspect of the society and the culture that Leviticus comes from. But back then, man, if a woman, if a man raped a woman, by law, her father, brother, husband had legal grounds to go to that man's house and do the same to his daughter, wife, sister. That was what the law said through the region, more often than not. That was the legal ramifications. And so Leviticus responds, actually this part is not in Leviticus, it's in Deuteronomy, which is kind of a sister book to Leviticus, but the Torah says that when a man does that to a woman, he has to finance her life and care for her for the rest of his life. He has to shelter her. He has to look after her. He has to feed her if she so wishes. He has to give her children so that she has a progeny in the future. And people in our culture today with their chronological snobbery look at things like this in the Bible and go, the Bible is anti-woman. The Bible is hateful of women. And I just want to take people by the shoulders and say, you... You snob, like you have no idea what you're talking about. Women who were victims of such crimes had no future in that time. It was a brutal world for women anyway, but women who suffered that crime, they had no future, no prospects. No one wanted to give them what they needed to survive, marriage and children. That's the way women got by. They faced a life of certain poverty and maybe things like prostitution were in their future. And here God says, no more. No more of that. No more of that retaliatory stuff either. And he commands an aggressor for the rest of his life to take care of the victim, to look after her. This is a quantum leap from the society Leviticus comes from and the ideas of justice that predate Leviticus. And it doesn't really stop there. I mean, if you look at the way other cultures in 1500 BC treated immigrants, immigrants at best were made into slaves. Immigrants often were beaten into submission. Immigrants more often than that were not welcome at all into a community. God says in Leviticus, lest you ever forget that you once were immigrants too, welcome the immigrant among you as a citizen among you to belong with you. That's Leviticus. And when you look at what Leviticus says about poverty to the people of God, in other cultures, the world was a brutal, awful, cold place to the poor. The, cold, the poor were seen as, you know, takers. The poor were seen as mooches and lazy and cursed. In Leviticus, God commands landowners to leave part of their 
crops unharvested every season so that the poor, the able-bodied poor can come and feed their families, can come and work for what they have, but harvest the crops without cost to them and feed their families. This is, again, Leviticus's response to a cold and harsh world. So God in Leviticus, the nature of God is revealed as one who is merciful, as one who is different from other gods. And he calls the people toward that same holiness. He says, that's how other people live, but that's not good enough. Don't compare yourselves to them. Compare yourselves to me. Be holy as I am holy. Now, this image of holiness evolves as scripture unfolds. It's not, so what is holy in Leviticus doesn't hold true in the New Testament. It's not the same standard as culture shift. This is interesting because even Jesus shows us this. By the time Jesus comes around, what was holy 1,500 years ago isn't good enough for Jesus anymore. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus revises the holiness code. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he says, so you haven't murdered anyone in a while. Congratulations for not murdering people. You know who else didn't murder anyone today? Basically everyone, believers and non-believers alike. Almost everyone didn't murder anyone today. So that's good. Congratulations. Pat yourself on the back. But just because you didn't murder anyone, did you feel like murdering someone? Were you, were you angry today? So Jesus pushes his disciples a little bit further. He says, anyone can master murder. Can you master the anger in your heart? Can you master anger? That's holiness now, Jesus says. He moves on to the next uh, Old Testament law in verse 27, 28 of Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Congratulations, you didn't sleep with your neighbor's wife today. That's great. And so did, you know, 98% of other people around you, whether they believe in God or not. Pretty much everybody agrees that sleeping with your neighbor's wife, bad idea. Amen? See, it's not even a big deal anymore. Like that, everybody assumes you shouldn't do that. Jesus says, but... Did you look at anyone's figure? Did you think of anyone in an objectifying way? Did you use anyone in your mind, someone that isn't yours to use in such a way? He said, anyone can master adultery. Can you master lust? That's holiness. Jesus takes it a step further. Matthew 5, 5, 43 and 44, he says, uh, basically, I'll paraphrase here. He says, so you love your friends. Big deal. Like Jesus says, any idiot can love his friends is what he's saying here. He says, can you master the hate in your heart and learn to love your enemies in uh, Matthew 5? And so Jesus says, don't settle for the status quo. Don't settle for what's standard. Look at the world around you and reveal a God who is different a God who is not normal. God isn't normal by our standards. Would you just say that with me? God is not normal, okay? Even today, in what we call you know, Christian nation or whatever, God is so different from us, and we're called to reveal God to the world. I came across a story this week uh, online about a woman in Kansas City. Her name is Sarah. Uh, Sarah uh, is a mother of six she has a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, 12-year-old, a 4-year-old, and 2-year-old twins. I know, right? Um, when she was pregnant with the twins, Sarah's husband and the kid's father 
died in a swimming accident at a lake. For a while, Sarah and the girls got by okay. Things seemed to get a little bit worse every day, though. Earlier this year, she was evicted from her home in Kansas City, and um, they couch surfed a little bit, she and the girls, but mostly they lived in their car. About two weeks ago, Sarah got really, really desperate. She was out of diapers, and her older girls had outgrown their shoes. Sarah went to a Walmart. She walked in and grabbed some diapers and grabbed a few pair of shoes and made a run for it. She was caught. Walmart security apprehended her, took Sarah and the girls and put them in a back office until the local police could respond. Police officer Mark Ingraval was the first one on the scene, and he went into that room where Sarah and the girls were, and he questioned Sarah. He said, what in the world could possess you to steal diapers and shoes? And Sarah told him everything. She told him about her husband dying tragically a few years before. She told him about being homeless told him about living in her car. She told him that last month, all the stuff that was in her car, which was all the stuff they had, it was all stolen last month out of her car. And she began to cry. She told him these things. And uh, Pastor, uh, I mean, uh, Officer Mark uh, listened, and he looked over at the girls, and they were crying too. And they thought they were going to lose their mommy um, after losing their daddy, you know, just before this. And he looked at their feet. Three of them weren't wearing shoes, and they had just dirty, grimy feet. And he knew God was tugging at his heart. He felt a tug at his heart to do something different. Um, he knew he couldn't put her in jail. So he writes her a citation for misdemeanor petty theft, and he lets her go. Now, for most officers hearing a story like Sarah's, that would have been enough uh, mercy. But for Mark, that wasn't quite enough. And Mark walked Sarah and her girls out of that office and toward the front of the store. And when he did, he said, uh, let's take a detour. And he asked them to follow him, and he led them to the diaper aisle where he picked up two big boxes of Huggies and he told one of the girls to grab two boxes of wipes, baby wipes. And then he pointed across the store and said, let's go over there. And when they got there, they were in the shoe department. And he let these little girls who had nothing of their own, he let them pick their own pair of shoes, each of them. And they chose the prettiest shoes they could find and they put them on and Mark took the tags off and walked to the front of the store with the diapers and the wipes and the girls with their shoes and they're so proud. And he leads them to the checkout aisle and they check him out and he reaches for his wallet and he opens his wallet and there's a picture of his own wife and child and he pulls out money to pay for all of these things for this woman who by the letter of the law belonged in jail. And then he let them go free. What's interesting about holiness is how contagious it is. Holiness 
is contagious. When the Kansas City Star got word of what Mark had done, it began to spread like wildfire. And in this interview with the Kansas City Star, Pastor Mark, I mean, I keep calling him pastor. He might as well be a pastor. Officer Mark said, when Walmart looks at her, they see a criminal. When I look at her, I see a mother going through a really hard time. And when word of this story spread, Kansas City caught on fire with compassion for this woman and her daughters, and it spread throughout the world. And at last count, people had given over $50,000 in cash and gift cards so that Sarah and her daughters never have to face that choice that they faced in that Walmart parking lot again. Dozens of people have come forward saying, I've got a house, I've got an apartment, come and stay here until you get back on your feet. Rent-free, come and, and stay here and be safe and don't live in your car anymore. And it just is a reminder to us that one person's choice to be holy as God is holy can change the future of the world can change the future of six little girls and their mommy, can change the complexion of a city. One person's choice to be holy. When I look at what Officer Mark did, I hear the voice of God. When he says, Walmart saw a criminal, I saw a mother who was hurting, that's God speaking through Mark. That's God telling this woman, I know what your life used to be like. I know who they say you are, but I know who you are. And that is not who you are anymore. Can you hear the voice of God? It, is, it resonates through Leviticus. I know they called you slaves. I know what you used to be, but this is who you are now. And I know you like no one else. This is the holiness God calls us toward. This is the holiness God calls you toward. You are not who you used to be. You are not who they said you were. You are not who you see sometimes when you look in the mirror. You are who the living God says you are. You are worthy of Jesus taking up the cross on your behalf. You are worthy of the greatest sacrifice. You are a child of the living God. And so how will you be holy? God is holy. What does holiness look like in your life? How can you go beyond the status quo, beyond the standard of expectation, beyond the mediocrity of this world, and reflect a God who is greater, who is other than, who is separate from this world? What does that look like for you at work to be compassionate with your clients in a way that makes people look twice? What does it look like for you at home to be holy? As God is holy, what does it look like in your heart with your free time? With your money? To be holy. I'm asking you to think and name one thing today that you're committing to. To move toward a more holy life. To reflect the difference God makes so that the world will know our God is different. One thing that you'll do different with your time, your money, your heart, your relationships. Name it today, live it this week, and watch how the holiness God plants in your life spreads like wildfire to everyone you come into contact with. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your life. We thank you for your love in our midst and for the way you call us to be holy, to be different, to be set apart, to reflect the wonder of who you are. We thank you for this meal that we're about to share, for the bread that's broken, for the cups that are poured out, 
for what they mean, that the old ways have passed away, the ways of comparing ourselves to other people, the ways of measuring our worth based on how other people see us and our supposed success by this world's metrics, all that is over because you have called us your own children of the living God. Help us to know and accept that as we receive this communion today. In Jesus' name, amen.